Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. The Military Maxims of Napoleon. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today we're going to continue studying the military maxims of Napoleon. But before we get into that, real quick, I wanted to, I wanted to say thank you. This, this show has gone places I never thought it would and has acquired an audience larger than I, than I would have dreamed. So first off, I want to say thank you to each and every single one of you for listening and I hope that this show helps you. Helps you in your gaming, helps you in, you know, thinking about the world, thinking about history. You know, in any way that I can, I am humbled and I am, I am proud to be a part of your life. Proud to be here speaking to you and hopefully making a difference. Or at the very least, just entertaining you. <laughs> that works just fine too. But you're all over the place, my dear listeners. You are absolutely everywhere. I, I did a little in-depth study of the stats a little bit, a couple of days ago, and I was floored, absolutely floored, to see where the show has gone, all the different places that it is listened to. So I decided to uh, make a list, and I'd like to read you that list right now, just to make sure that, that I say thank you to you. We are in the United States, the United Kingdom, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, DRC. We're in Canada, Germany, Australia, Spain, France, Belgium, Finland, Italy, Sweden, New Zealand, Argentina, Norway, Chile, Portugal, Hong Kong, and that ever-elusive other. We're on six continents, y'all. Good job. (laughs) Just fantastic job. We are, yeah, six continents. That's amazing. What I do need to know, though, is from those of you down close to there, maybe those of you in, like, New Zealand, Argentina area, how much would it cost to mount a amphibious invasion of Antarctica. Because so far that's the only continent that we're not on. Just just think that in mind. Anybody's got a solution for that for me, just drop it in my DMs and we'll, we'll go from there because then we'll have all seven, you know, a clean sweep. But no, I thank you guys so much. Thank you again for listening. Thank you again for, uh, for you know, those of you who are patrons for supporting the show and allowing us to go and, and do those things, which hopefully benefit all of you again. So, yeah, I know I'm I'm just sort of drooling all over this, but I was, again, floored, just floored as to as to how many of the, you there are and where you are. It's really cool. Before we get into the Napoleonic maxims real quick, I did want to cover the Ukrainian war. Now, I've been paying attention to it this whole time, over a year, fighting there in the Ukraine, and I haven't been giving like a play-by-play up-to-date, because in many ways, a real-world tragedy 
like this doesn't necessarily play into our wargaming. And I don't necessarily want to use it as a model for wargaming because it seems insensitive to those who are currently suffering uh, this conflict. However, I do want to touch on a few things just in terms of overall analysis there. As you may know, at the time of this recording, the Russians are not doing very well. Ukrainians have managed to push them back out of most of their uh, gains, out of most of their conquered regions, and while the Russians are attempting a bit of a, a pushback on that, it is encountering quite a bit of resistance. And they are having a hard time with every foot of ground that they gain, despite their artillery, despite their, you know, the, the might of an empire like Russia. It's foundering in the Ukraine. Why is that? How is it that one of the mightiest nations in the world seems to be having such an issue here? Well, as we had discussed back in the Abu Bakr Naji series, if you've got a smaller group, you've got asymmetrical warfare, and the smaller group has international support, that's huge. That's absolutely huge because, of course, everybody knows that the Ukraine is receiving funds and arms from places like America and Germany that are sending all sorts of stuff to help out, to make sure that this, this Russian aggression goes checked. And that relates to the second point, which is logistics. As we've discussed on the show before, and I know it's not flashy. I know it's not necessarily the tactics or the strategy that you would want from studying war gaming. But when we look at war in terms of history, one of the most important things, and I know I've driven this home, is logistics. Logistics are huge. 5% or less of warfare is fighting. The rest of it is getting men, material, and everything needed to support those things into a place at the right time with right stuff. So logistics is the most important a lot of times and the most elusive of the skills in warfare. And that is one of the places that the Russians are struggling. From all reports, they are having issues getting ammunition to the front lines, in particular to the Wagner group has uh, spoken out like directly against the Kremlin is, is something that I would not have thought be like, cause Putin's got a, an iron fist over there. And even the dissent inside Russia itself is fairly quickly put down either by stern words and glances and threats from him or by arrests. You know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a hard time to be a protester in Russia to go against it. But the Wagner group, this, the leader of it has outright said, um, and again, the translation is different depending on where you read it, but basically they were saying that this lack of supply, this lack of bullets, is either due to red tape idiocy or treason. Treason. Betrayal. They're, they're accusing Russia of betraying them, which is so bizarre because they have been on the forefront of this. You know, just about every time you hear about a major push or a major gain, the Wagner group has been involved. This, this militia, this... Um, kind of mercenary crew. And they have proven very important to the war effort for Russia. And so the fact that they are struggling, the fact that they are even considering maybe pulling out is devastating. Now, we wonder why would they even need the Wagner group? They've, they've basically called up a draft in a lot of ways. They called up a bunch of reservists. They've called up just about everybody they can to put them in to that front line. But what you've got there are not professional soldiers. The Wagner group is professional soldiers, but anytime you have anything resembling a draft, you are going to have poorly trained and poorly motivated soldiers. They're not there because they want to be. 
They're there because they have to be. They're there because they're ordered to be in a particular case like the Ukraine. And this is something, now we're going to go into the other thing that Russia has against it, which is the morale factor. Which again, I know we've covered ad nauseum on this show, how important morale is. And so for a lot of these Russian soldiers, they don't want to be there. Partially because of the closeness of the Ukraine to Russia, both linguistically, culturally, family-wise. In, in, in a lot of cases, there's people who have family on both sides of the border there. It's, they're very, very, very interconnected cultures, while still being very distinct. And so, of course, of course, a lot of these Russians do not want to go to war with them. It'd be like the United States going to war with Canada. It would be weird. Like, we're, we're different enough that we have our own separate societies, but we are similar enough in manner of speech, in manner of dress, in manner of culture, that it would just be hard. It would be hard to go to war with somebody who is so much like you, who shares a border like that with you, where you've got family, where you've got, again, cultural, transcending these national borders. So the morale factor is absolutely against Russia on this one, and totally for the Ukraine, because not only do they have the Western allies supporting them, which will boost them up, you know, they're getting good equipment, they're getting... You know, people coming in and, and training them to be able to do certain things, not just use the equipment, but operate in urban environments, for instance, which are absolutely devastating. As a defender, using urban environments can just devastate an offender, which is what we're seeing right now in the current siege. So the, under, the morale factor cannot be, cannot be overstated. It's huge. The Ukrainians have it. Despite, despite the bombings, despite the miserable winter that they have been enduring. Their army has kept their morale up, they, their fighting spirit up. The Russians seem to be lagging. So we have no idea what the future holds. You know, by the time this is published, perhaps, you know, the, there'll be a massive offensive. It was a, a ploy all along. The Russians were stronger than everybody thought they were. Who knows? Who knows what the future holds? I am not a soothsayer. But what I do know is looking at it, that the Russians are at a big disadvantage because of those two big factors which contribute most to success in war, which is morale and logistics. Well, I've uh, yammered on about that particular subject long enough for now, so I think it is time for us to move in to discussing some more of those military maxims put down by Napoleon. Last time, we left off with the 12th of these maxims, so I think it's only fitting for us to begin again at 13. So number 13, Napoleon writes, The intervals at which the core of an army should be from each other in marching depend on the localities, the circumstances, and the object in view. Which is to say that all things are, you know, apt, need to be adaptable to the the place where we are, the circumstances, like he says, that we're in. Sitting there and saying, like, uh, if you think back to Machiavelli, saying, okay, they need to be exactly this far apart and be exactly doing these things at this time, is ridiculous. When we're thinking about all the variables that come with battlefield uh, preparation and with battlefield selection. So Napoleon gives us wiggle room here. He says that it depends on the locality, which is it depends on the terrain, Depends on who is present, right? The circumstances. Is our enemy directly in front of us? 
Are they somewhere out there, someplace unknown? Are we marching to a siege where they have fallen back to a place and are in a place of vulnerability? These things matter. These things matter and will influence how far we can place our core, which is to say our individual sections of our army from each other. And then of course the object in view. Are we going after a town? Are we going after an army? Are we going after a particular mountain or valley or, or industrial zone? These things all matter. Because of course in, in previous ones he had talked about if our, if our core are too far apart, then they can be singled out and destroyed. Like we've said before, if you've got two, a value of two, and I've got a value of two, and I divide my value of two into two ones, and have them coming at you from different angles, well, if you're able to, you can go and crush one of my ones, and then crush the other one, and always have that numeric advantage. So when we're dealing with dividing core up, it does matter. It does very much matter what distance we are from our enemy, how many of our enemy there are, and if we know exactly where they are, because uncertainty, of course, we want to keep stuff a little bit closer together. Because we don't want one piece or another getting ambushed and being outside of a zone where the other ones can move to protect, right? And so we can do this, we, we think of this in the same way when we're dealing with wargaming itself. If we're dealing with physical wargaming and we're out there, well, of course, we don't want our individual elements of our, of our side to be too spread out, especially against an enemy that is condensed, it is no, it does, <laughs> is knows what they're doing, does know what they're doing. We want to be a little bit closer. We want to make sure that we can support one another. The same thing with something like uh, 40k. I am continuously having to remind myself not to, to put my core, for the metaphor, too far away from each other so that they cannot support one another, so that they cannot actually be effective as a group, but are more vulnerable, vulnerable, exactly where they are. So this does matter. And it's good, I think, that he doesn't provide specific measured instructions for this because it should be up to the genius of the commander, which is to say it should be up to whatever we think the situation calls for. Let's go to number 14 now. Among mountains, there are everywhere numerous positions extremely strong by nature, which you should abstain from attacking. The genius of this kind of war consists in occupying camps either on the flank or the rear of the enemy, so as to leave him no alternative but to withdraw from his position without fighting, and to move him further back, or to make him come out and attack you. In mountain war, the attacking party acts under a disadvantage. Even in offensive war, the merit lies in having only defensive conflicts and obliging your enemy to become the assailant. I mean, this is echoing what Clausewitz said. He basically said the exact same thing. He said the rules are different when it comes to mountain warfare. And he talked about this, you know, setting up on your opponent's flanks so they either have to withdraw or confront you. And we can do the same thing here when we're, when we're talking about, you know, certain areas. I know when we're dealing with flat fields or a flat board, we may not see this too much, but if we've got varied terrain in either case, and if we've got something that is contentious, like mountains are, well, these rules apply. Trying to make sure that we are limiting our ability, our enemy's motion and making them do what we want them to do, and making them attack us while we are in a favorable position. Remember, this is one of the few places where defense is way, 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 way stronger than mountain. I mean, Clausewitz already says defense is the superior kind of war, and nowhere is that more true than in mountains. 
And part of that is because, I think we talked about this before, if the attack fails, if it breaks upon the defensive position, they have to get all the way back to wherever they were attacking from, which opens them up to a counterattack from a force that has momentum against their force that is not in a prepared position. So it's rough. And it's something to absolutely be taken into account. So everything we've talked about with Clausewitz on this, Napoleon is echoing word for word here. They were dealing with the same type of terrain, the same military science, and in this they 100% agree. Number 15. In giving battle, a general should regard it as his first duty to maintain the honor and glory of his arms. To spare his troops should be but a secondary consideration. But the same determination and perseverance which promote the, for the former objective are the best means of securing the latter. In a retreat, you lose, in addition to the honor of your arms, more men than in two battles. For this reason, you should never despair while there remain brave men around the colors. This is the conduct which wins, and deserves to win, the victory. Kind of convoluted here. But he's saying, of course, that our... Our first duty is to make sure that we're preserving what we have. Remember in this time that artillery wasn't super mobile. That it was something that unless it was specifically planned for to move, it often uh, took time to set up or to, to take down and move to somewhere else. And so if the position is actively being attacked and you're withdrawing from that position, it's very common to have to leave that artillery behind. You know, this, the tactics... And some of this military science that applies here at the turn of the century also applies mid-century during the American Civil War, where a good portion of the artillery gained, uh, particularly on the Confederate side, was looted from the, uh, the, the retreating Union soldiers. And so in this way, they didn't just lose the battle, they lost very, very, very valuable equipment. And so we have to think of it the same way. What things on our field, what things on our table are the most important to us. Which arms need to be preserved? Well, often we think of our long-range arms, archers. And we go out of our way to protect archers. We go out of our way to protect our artillery for this, this same reason. If we fall back behind it, if we leave it exposed, it defeats the purpose entirely. Our artillery is no longer useful. But if we're trying to keep hold of it, well, we don't just preserve the bow and the arrows, but we preserve the archer as well. So as we're not seeking necessarily to preserve our troops, we uh, inadvertently do so by preserving our arms. Now, some of this should be taken with a grain of salt, because anybody who knows the history of Napoleon will also know uh, Waterloo, where Mr. Overreach and Mr. Overdedicate may have done both of those things. So... Take this one with a grain of salt in terms of like how much perseverance is required, but he's right like just retreating because we feel like we're Because we didn't give it enough is bad. We lose a lot. We lose men. We lose material Because it's hard to do a actual orderly retreat in the face of an enemy who is doing proper pursuit if our enemy isn't properly pursuing then we can breathe a sigh of relief because our enemy is proving incompetent in that way. But if our enemy knows what they're doing, and they're following up on their victory, chasing us, it's hard. It is hard to regain ground. It is hard to regain force and strength. And so that's what Napoleon is driving at here. Preserving that momentum. Preserving our forces by remaining on the offensive and keeping our opponent guessing. Keeping them on the back foot. 
So, this one's good, and it's also to be taken with a grain of salt. Remember that there is a time for a fighting withdrawal. There is a time for a reposition. There is a time to pull our soldiers back and try to think better of where to put them. Not all the time, but this is something that should be left up to our individual genius as commanders. Number 16. A well-established maxim of war is not to do anything which your enemy wishes, and for the single reason that he does so wish. You should, therefore, avoid a field of battle which he has reconnoitered and studied. You should still be more careful to avoid one which he has fortified and where he has entrenched himself. A corollary of this principle is never to attack in front of a position which admits of being turned. So that's kind of a weird phrasing on that last line, but which is to say that, like, why do a frontal assault when we're able to turn the lines? Punching through the center is hard because the center is the easiest place to reinforce. You can pull from either side. And so a center is, by its very nature, far more difficult and far stronger. Now, this is, of course, if we have an organized force that is under an organized mind. Too many times when I've been at events, and Battle for the Ring was no different, people would navigate to the flanks. Because often those flanks, like we're saying here, are the ones that turn. That's where the victory usually occurs, is in the turning of a flank and the running of the line. And so, subconsciously, as the day wears on, people will start to move toward the flanks where they set up. And that leaves a nice open spot in the center, which completely defeats this purpose because now the center itself has become a flank because there's nobody there. The core are too far apart. The number of times that I've shot that center, gotten up behind and rolled a line, many times. And so that center that they were depending on, that strength that was supposed to be there, isn't. And that happens when we're disorderly. That happens when people aren't necessarily thinking and are just behaving instinctively, I guess, on the battlefield. But if they are doing the logical thing and they have that strong center, then absolutely, why would we attack them head on? Why would we march directly into the gates of hell, right into their teeth with the cannons and the walls and the parapets and the whatever else, the mines, whatever else they might have prepared for us? Instead, Let's go where they don't expect. And this is a fairly straightforward maxim. If our enemy is prepared for us, then don't do it. Don't do that thing. You know, my buddy TF is a really good example of that. He's very good at a running, like backward sort of retreat. He's very fleet. And so when he's prepped, when he's sitting there and I look at his footwork and I know with his weight on his back foot that he's ready to spring and be gone the second that he's advanced upon, I'm a fool to hit him straight on. I'm a fool to run directly at him because he is ready. He has prepared the field. He has prepared his stance to do the thing that he has done 10,000 times previously. Why would I do this? Why would I do this thing if I actually want to win? And so it's better to switch our opponent up. You move from side to side, make them switch their stance, make them switch their footing, find the time to be able to hit when he's not going to be as prepared, when he's not going to be able to you know, back foot as quickly. Now, that window, by the way, is minuscule. It's like a millisecond. It's the same with most of the people that, I, that are good, <laughs> that fight. You know, this is a very small window that we have to look for. But trying to attack our opponent when they are completely prepared for us to attack is a great way to lose. So it is, it is better in this particular case to show patience than it is to show haste. Number 17. In a war of marches and maneuvers, to escape an engagement with a superior enemy 
it is necessary to throw up entrenchments every night and to place yourself always in a good position for defense. The natural positions which are commonly met with cannot secure an army against the superiority of a more numerous one without the aid of art. It takes art to engage a force larger than ours. Again, numbers matter. Not all the time. Numbers do not always carry the day, but nine times out of ten, the bigger side is probably going to win. Also factoring in those, those uh, you know, circumstances of morale and logistics. What he's saying here is basically set up roadblocks. Make it so that your enemy does not have an easy time getting at you, that you've put these things in the way to break that momentum, to break them coming at you so that when we do fall back, this isn't retreating, by the way. Retreating is when we're already engaged in battle, we choose to fall out of that battle and try to withdraw from it. That's a retreat. What he's talking about right here is moving around a superior enemy, moving around and trying to outwit them. And it takes art. It takes art to do that. Frederick the Great had it. Taking smaller armies against a superior one through maneuver, right? Wasn't just facing them head on, wasn't just walking right into their line, but instead hitting them at the oblique, where they didn't expect it, where they could have that local numeric superiority. And that's how we beat superior numbers, not by hitting them head on, but by maneuvering in such a way that our art can kick in and we can capitalize on a mistake that they may have made. Number 18. An ordinary general occupying a bad position, if surprised by a superior force, seeks safety in retreat, but a great captain displays the utmost determination and advances to meet the enemy. By this movement, he disconcerts his adversary, and if the march of the latter invices a revolution, irresolution, excuse me, an able general, profiting by the moment of indecision, may yet hope for victory or at least employ the day in maneuvering, and at night he can entrench himself or fall back on a better position. By this fearless conduct, he maintains the honor of his arms, which forms so essential a part of the strength of an army. You've heard it said before, when I've had thumbs on, when I've had Turkey on, when I've had Kaji on, when I've had Sumatai on, the ability to move forward with confidence and stop a line. The number of times that myself and other vets that I know have walked out against superior numbers. You know, we're out there against a flank of five. Easily, easily if they ganged up, easily if they had the motivation they could overwhelm. But when you step out with that sort of confidence, with that sort of gravitas, it makes them think for a second. And when they are thinking, either we can use that to maneuver to a better position, which is a really good case too, or we can capitalize upon it and hit them. And use that moment of indecision, use that moment of doubt as a weapon against them. That's the best way. So by move, moving boldly forward, by being able to aggress and put our enemy on the back foot, if only mentally, because of course they're expecting what this ordinary general does in this particular maxim, a withdrawal. They're coming, they look big, they're expecting the opponent to try to get out of the way. Well, when they step forward, that makes the attacking force question, huh, well, are they really stronger than me by any chance? Do they have some sort of secret weapon that I don't know about? Is there a secondary army or a secondary corps lurking in the woods or the mountains somewhere ready to ambush me when I, when I go in to attack? What does this boldness mean? Well, even if it is just a gambit, it gets some thinking. And in those moments of thinking, that is where we are able 
to make up for our lack of numbers. And like you said, you know, move into the oblique, move into a maneuver, move into hitting specific things. But in either case, sallying forth from our position rather than falling back means that we are protecting those arms. And if we do need to fall back under the cover of night, like he says, we're able to bring our artillery with us. We're able to bring that super important stuff that we need with us. And again, this isn't something that normally happens in wargaming because we don't fight all day and then rest on our laurels and the trench works and that sort of thing. It's not quite as realistic as all this. But the idea of sallying forth and meeting our opponent bravely so that we can get more options by that, that doubt that it ensues, well, that's tops. That's exactly what we want to do. And I agree with Napoleon here. 19, short but sweet. The passage from the defensive to the offensive is one of the most delicate operations of war. He is absolutely right. Trying to move from a defensive position into an offensive position is very difficult in a big way because of coordination. And it's fairly easy to be in a defensive position because I'm like, okay, you hold that ridge line over there, you hold that valley over there, we're going to be guarding this river. Outstanding. You've got your, your bases covered. But what if we do want to push forth? What if we do want to go on the offensive? Well, there's a lot of things that are an issue with that. For one thing, at the time that he was writing, you're dealing with communication lag. They didn't have the ability to communicate instantly across radio to other people and, and inform them of what was going on. They had to rely on couriers or pigeons or, or some other slow manner of transport of information. So if let's say that one area, the center perhaps, has broken the enemy offensive. The enemy is fleeing backwards. And we're like, okay, we have an opportunity here. We have an opportunity to switch from defensive to offensive. But we don't know what's happening on the flanks. Perhaps they're having just as good of luck, ready to push forward as well. Perhaps they're having worse luck and are admired in fight and perhaps even thinking of withdrawing. So this, this going onto the offensive is very tricky. Because that is one big reason, the coordination with the other sides and making sure that every part of the army, every part of the army is ready to advance. Because the last thing you want is to open up a flank by advancing past an enemy attack and saying, here you go, straight into the back line, have fun. And I've seen this all the time. I've seen victory turn to, uh, uh, to sour defeat on the field when people get overconfident and split their forces like this and, and try to advance without the support of the rest of the army. So that's an important point, I think. The other issue that we have in switching from defensive to offensive is our ability to follow up on it. If we are already in an entrenched position, chances are our forward movement is just as encumbered as the enemy's. We've put up things, entrenchments, whatever we have in front of us that, that hinder our enemy from getting to us, now those things are hindering to us as well. And so we have to have a plan of navigating them if we're going to do so, and again, a concerted way. The last thing we want is to attack as a rabble. The last thing we want is to attack with no coordination, with no continuity between our forces, because that completely defeats. It will snatch away our victory. We have our victory, we pursue it further, and we, it's snatched away. And so this is something that does need to be studied. This ability to switch from defensive to offensive. It's easier in individual fighting because we just strike out. We've only got our sword to worry about, our sword and our opponent's sword. But we switch over to something that's on a board 
Well, now we have a different thing in mind. And what are we advancing into? Is Does the enemy have reserves that we're moving up into that we might not be prepared for? Let's say that we've already accounted for artillery positions where we set up originally, but if we advance forward, we may be exposed to our enemy's artillery by moving out of our positions. So there's a lot of things to think about here. For such a short maxim, there's a lot to think about here. And so I would, I would put it to you, kind of mull it around in your mind, what you think these different requirements would be for switching from defensive to offensive seamlessly in the middle of fighting. Number 20. Your line of operations should never, as a general rule, be abandoned, but changing it when circumstances require is one of the most skillful of military maneuvers. An army which changes its line of operations skillfully deceives the enemy, who no longer knows where his antagonist's rear is, or what the weak points are to threaten. Fairly straightforward on this one. You know, can, can if we do need to switch, if our enemy is getting close to our line of retreat, how do we switch that up? Well, one of the ways we can do this is have contingencies. You know, think, okay, what do I do? Where can I go? How can I shift in order to deal with this? This is something that is on my mind constantly when I play against Toto's Grey Knights, because he can switch up the field so much. He can be in my rear line so fast, just by abilities, spells, whatever the case, whatever he's using, he can get there. And so I have to have a plan. I have to have a contingency of, okay, if he ends up behind me, which he likely will, how am I going to react to that? What, where am I going to move instead? How am I going to protect my, my arms, my honor, uh, my, uh, what does he call it? The, um, no, it's here somewhere. The arms, honor of arms. Uh, I'm having trouble finding the exact wording, but you know what I'm talking about. You, you know what I'm talking about. He's talking about kind of preserving those things which make our, our military effort far more effective, whether they be units that we rely on for long-range capability, or whether it be for people, or baggage train that we rely on for supply, or for protection. Either way, this is, this is difficult. And not only because it requires a complete repositioning of our army, but it also requires a complete repositioning of logistics. And as we've talked about before, especially in this time period with how hard information was to get from one place to another, changing up those logistic lines would be hard. Because it's easy enough as we're going forward to establish these outposts and say, okay, this is the next part of the line. This is the next part of the line. We've got our depots. We've got our armories as we're moving forth. We have our arsenal behind us. And so it's easy. You just know where those depots are and you follow them to the army. If that switches... If suddenly that, that line needs to move, chaos. Oh, can you imagine the chaos? And so that's hard. This is a hard thing. And, and he's, he calls it out well here, which is to say it is a very skillful military maneuver. Of course, he's not going to say how to do it because it's different in every single circumstance. Are we in the plains? Are we near rivers? Are we near mountains? Are we near other camps or cities? All of these things play a role in how and if we can switch up this line of communication in order to protect ourselves. So really the better thing in the first place is just to protect it from enemy incursion at all costs. Because if you, we do have to switch it up, it can be very difficult and costly to our army. 21. When an army is encumbered, 
with siege equipage or large convoys of wounded and sick, it should approach its depots by the shortest roads and by exp and as expeditiously as possible. Well, duh. Yeah, I mean, if you've, <laughs> if we've got, of course, uh, something that's moving slow or something that is important, like wounded or sick, of course, we want to go as quickly as possible to our, to our nearest depot. You know, there's some of these maxims that are just sort of like ridiculously simple. And this is one of them. I mean, it's something to remember. Like, we find ourselves in this situation instead of being like, okay, I'm going to go around and go through and blah, 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 blah. Nope. Straight to it. If we're wounded, if we're sick, if we're over-encumbered, straight to the place where we're able to be, have some sort of protection, be a part of that supply line, as we said, because then we can be. You know, if we're moving along that convoy line, then we can move backwards and forwards in relative ease. And with the understanding that we are likely protected in doing so. So even though this one seems kind of, well, yeah, it is very, well, yeah, and should be done every time. Also, this kind of applies to, to like, uh, physical wargaming in terms of camping, because if we are encumbered, we want to get to our camp as fast as possible to put that down. If we are wounded or sick, we absolutely want to get back to our camp as quickly as possible to put us down. So, it makes sense even in the games that we play. 22. The art of encamping on a position is nothing else than the art of forming in order of battle on that position. For this purpose, the artillery should, be all, be, should all be in readiness and favorably placed. A position should be selected which is not commanded, cannot be turned, and from which the ground in the vicinity is covered and commanded. The attack can come at any time. The attack can come from anywhere. The nice thing about our wargaming is that we know when and where that is. We're able to kind of prepare for it. You know, before the match starts, I can look across the field and assess which fighters are good, which fighters are bad, what kind of units might be over there, and where I want to line up. Do I want to go against the strong ones and support that flank against strength? Do I want to go against the weak ones and try to break that flank or that center? I have that ability to choose. The same thing with Warhammer 40k or other such things. We're setting up the board and I can see what my opponent is doing and they can see what I'm doing. So there's already this agreement. But in terms of this sort of encampment, when you're sitting there at night, not knowing where the enemy is or when they might attack, what Napoleon is saying here is, be ready. Or as the Boy Scouts would say, be prepared. Right? We, we're, we're setting up our camp with the intention that it will become a battleground. So we're putting our artillery on in commanding positions so that they're able to re retaliate as quickly as possible. We've got our cav positioned in such a place that they can sally forth and make a difference. Our infantry, of course, are camped in such a way that they can grab their arms and be battle-ready and in their formations already quickly. Because it needs to be quickly. Throughout history, some of the most effective assaults were night assaults or morning assaults against an unsuspecting enemy. Napoleon doesn't want to be that unsuspecting victim, and neither do we. So that constant vigilance, constantly being prepared to be attacked while on the battlefield, while on campaign, is smart. For us, maybe not as important with what we do. Unless you're playing something like Civ or... Stellaris, which I've really gotten into, it's that, it's that game that's kind of like Civilization in Space. It's awesome. You can design your own species and your own government. It's great. But you never know. Somebody who's on the border there, somebody who you've had good ties with, might suddenly decide to denounce you. 
and invade your territory. What are you going to do? If all of our armies are, are back at the capital, we're not going to be able to react to those things on the frontier. And if we do have armies on the frontier that are just out in the open, undefended, no forts, no cities nearby, they're sitting ducks. They're not ready for it. So at every time, we need to make sure that we are prepared for this inevitable coming of battle. And you know, I think that's where we're going we're to stop today. We're going to stop there at 22. We made it a good distance, got 10 more of these bad boys underneath our belt. And uh, yeah, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. <laughs> <laughs>